Hello, Plastic Pills listeners. This is Victor. <laughs> Again, God damn it. God Take damn three. It. We, maybe we should just keep that in. Hello, Plastic Pills <laughs> listeners. I'm here with Matt, uh, Eric, and uh, guest, special guest and friend of the show, Ben Burgess. We're here to plug yet another of Matt's edited volumes, but this time all of us here have actually written an essay for it. The name, Matt, remind me, it's Liberalism and Socialism or Versus? It's not Versus, is it? Uh, no, that would have been fun, though. Uh, liberalism and Socialism, Mortal Enemies or Embittered Kin uh, for the Palgrave Studies and Classical Liberalism line. Yeah, for sure. And we'll obviously have a link in the description for those of you who want to spend like $100 in an academic book or just like wait and get it from your library. Probably shouldn't shouldn't buy it from the, from the press. But in any case, <laughs> so Pills is not here because he doesn't care about liberalism or socialism and doesn't want to hear us talk about it. Um, but today, I guess we just want to explore and compare uh, liberalism and socialism as we've done uh, many times in the past. But this time we've all written essays on it. So I don't know, Matt, what do you think in term when you think about uh, distinguishing liberalism and socialism, a lot of our listeners, especially the more Marxist oriented ones, definitely want to deny that there's, you know, any relationship between them. Um, I'm hearing a dog in the background that's the right now. That's the sound of liberalism and socialism it's, fighting. <laughs> <laughs> I think the dog is saying that they are definitely embittered, uh, very embittered. Yeah, so Matt, I don't know. What would you say in terms of like the compatibility? Is it compatible? Are the are the are our Marxist listeners right that you know being a lib is the is a is a is a mortal sin? There are two catalysts really. One was the uh, rise of Bernie Sanders and other figures like AOC uh, back in the day, Jeremy Corbyn, uh, to kind of the forefront of political movements in their respective countries. Uh, what was interesting about this for me is you know, being a millennial who kind of grew up at the end of history when socialism was supposed to be a dead word. Uh, you had all these people who were kind of resuscitating it. And I thought that was very politically intriguing and also to my own taste, since I liked a lot of the policies they were advancing. Um, the second thing uh, that interested me about this uh, was, of course, the fact that Trumpism and the emergence of a lot of these hard or far right movements, however you want to characterize them, uh, were broadly speaking opposed to both liberalism and leftism, uh, which included socialism, while at the same time they tended to borrow characteristics, features, arguments from both of these traditions. Uh, so what I was hoping to do in this book uh, was talk a little bit about what the distinctions and overlaps are between liberalism and socialism uh, and whether they can be reconciled in any way, shape, or form. Uh, I think they can, uh, but we can get into that uh, because I wanted to kind of demarcate what each of these traditions stands for uh, with a little bit more clarity. Right. I was wondering, Ben, I was wondering uh, whether you think, what you think about this idea that maybe like isms, because I've often thought, you know, when we try to, when we try to like define our ideologies according to this label, I think there can be a temptation or, or it almost leads to some sort of like, I think, um, reasoning flaw where like, and to, I'll give you this example. So when we, when there was this whole debate about whether Trump was a fascist or not, I know you've been engaged in, in that question before. We've, you, I think you've probably talked about it on your show before and maybe written about it as well, actually. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that like, sometimes when we try to label something with an ism, we end up distorting our ability to be specific about why that thing is good or bad. So it's like, you know, people want to label Trump a fascist because it's just some sort of synonym for him being bad. Whereas maybe we could argue what's more, what would be more useful is to just be like specific about tr what Trump does and like why that's bad, the reasons for why that's bad. And I wonder whether there would be like some sort of analogous problem where like when we try to define ourselves as socialist or liberal, it's like we are 
almost putting some barrier between us just talking specifically about like what we want that would be good like what would be the good outcomes that we would want yeah uh i i think that i think that labels can be really useful as as shorthand um I mean, I think the Trump is a fascist thing is really interesting example because I would argue that although, look, I mean, I don't really like I'm not I don't I'm not going to be the guy who like if somebody, you know, is using the word in clearly an expressive sense. Right. You know, as 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 just kind of a way of expressing like really strong visceral distaste, you know, that like I'm not going to be the guy who's like stand down the sidelines. And, well, actually. Right. It's like, OK, in that context, I know what you mean. It's fine. Right. But I, I think one reason I have been critical of the of the, you know, Trump fascism analogies is that I think they're often misleading about why Trump was bad because he was very bad. Uh, but uh, but I think that not really in the way that classical fascists uh, were were bad, uh, that, you know, most of what he did, I mean, certainly his immigration policies, you know, were were even crueler and, and, and more vindictive, you know, than, than other conservatives' immigration policies have been. Uh, but outside of that context, almost everything that he did really was what Mitt Romney would have done. And, and, and like, that's bad. Republicans are bad. I'm against them, you know, but, uh, but I, I don't know how helpful it is called fascist, especially because, uh, you know, I, and I know... You, you can tell, you know, you can tell our schnauzer, you know, really disagrees with this analysis, but I'm just going <laughs> to, I'm just going to keep going. Uh, that uh, I think especially because if you think about COVID, which is really one of the worst things Trump did was COVID response. But the problem with Trump's COVID response wasn't that it was too fascist. Uh, it was almost the opposite of that, you know, that, that, uh, that it was way too laissez-faire, you know, that, uh, that like I, I could have used a little more authoritarianism in the COVID response as opposed to what we had, which was basically mass murder by neglect. Um, so I think these can be can I, useful. Can I just interject there yeah. and say that I've often conceived of like a different universe where Trump goes the opposite direction and probably wins the election. Uh, but he just comes up there. He's like, we're going to have a war, the hardest war against COVID. Your government is going to be here for you. We're going to have the, the tightest restrictions in the world, tighter than anything, tighter than any pussy I've ever been in. And believe me, I've been in a lot, right? A lot. Like that kind of speech and like just the whole trajectory of what goes on. Yeah, and, and all of the, yeah, absolutely. I could totally imagine that world. And yeah, whole trajectory is different. All the MAGA people love it, which they would. And mm-hmm. um and all of the Russia-obsessed resistance types uh, become anti-maskers, which is 100% what would have happened uh, in that universe. I, I don't have the slightest doubt about that. But uh, but yeah, I, I think that's right. In fact, actually, if you look at Hungary, I mean, Viktor Orban kind of did go that route a little bit. You know, he, he, he said, like, oh, this is an emergency, no elections. You know, that's uh, gotta gotta let me do whatever I want. It's an emergency. It's like okay, that's how a fascist would handle COVID. Uh, is uh, is that way? But I think so. I think that that example maybe could show that these are these can be. Look, I mean, you can't do politics without shorthands because, uh, like, you know, if you're writing a philosophical essay, you could spend five paragraphs disambiguating exactly what you mean. But like, you just can't do that. You know, for any kind of mass political communication. And even in a philosophical essay, like, you know, 
like you can't like you're gonna have an infinite regress problem if you don't start with like some like okay you kind of know what i mean by this and you know we could do a little disambiguating but like you know you, you sort of have to start somewhere so I, I i do think it's probably unavoidable but i i also like your impulse there because uh you know you were talking earlier about you know uh, sort of orthodox Marxist listeners not liking the the suggestion of uh, that there's that you know liberalism and socialism could be anything other uh, than uh, than mortal enemies. You know the danger of the shorthands is that they end up um, you know people end up thinking about you know things like in this weird short circuited way. Like, okay, I agree with Marx. What does Marx say? I agree with that, right? Rather than, okay, what is the specific thing that Marx says that I agree with? And, you know, how, how sure am I that that's true versus how sure am I that this other thing is true? And, and does this really follow from the stuff that I'm sure that I actually agree with it about, which is much harder? Uh, you know, my my essay, I'll, I'll say it was an attempt to kind of like write into the teeth of, of that exact thing that you're talking about with, with that sort of, Marxist hostility to uh, to to the word because like the 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 title was literally Marx was a liberal uh, or you know I mean I, I philosophical in parentheses but you know like that because uh, because I think that once we get a lot clearer on what we mean uh, then I think the relationship looks really different especially because one of the biggest things I've talked about in there that like if you watch the thing that Matt and I did on the Jacobin YouTube last year you know that we talked a lot about there is just like try to sort out the different things you could mean by that because I think one of the things that really hobbles this discussion when people do use that ism shorthand uh, is that um, same is true to a certain extent for socialism but really especially for liberalism like that means just wildly different things. Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of times when people say, oh, I'm a Marxist, I hate liberals and liberalism, like there are four or five different definitions that they're conflated there, right? Like, does that mean like I hate like political philosophies that are inspired by like John Locke's view of property rights? Does that mean, does that mean I hate the idea that liberal rights, you know, free speech and freedom of religion and all that stuff are, are unimportant? You know, uh, does, does that mean that uh, does that mean that I hate liberals in the dominant contemporary sense, which is like the political spectrum sense, like the uh, like liberals as opposed to radicals. And those, I think, are three very different things. And we're just going to have a much more useful discussion if we separate them out. Yeah, for sure. Um, Eric, on like the topic of sort of, you know, the usefulness of ideology for solving, I guess, more specific problems or when we're looking for specific things to solve or specific outcomes we want in society. I know your essay kind of dealt with the environmental issue. So I wonder, like, how do you see that tension between um, like labels and like the tension between liberal and socialism, but then also like a more dealing with a concrete problem like climate change or, or, uh, or yeah, or global warming and stuff? Yeah, yeah, I I follow the same sort of idea that that Isms can be very unhelpful when you don't make those kinds of distinctions within them, different different sorts of, let's say, like developmental stories, origin stories, whatever you want to call them. So I, I yeah, like you said, I, I came at this from the perspective of a more specific issue uh, and then how that issue gets worked out in, in the sort of political sphere and how it interacts with different political worldviews that obviously predate 
this issue, which is environmentalism and climate change and global warming and those sorts of things. These these worldviews predate this issue by obviously quite a while. And uh, so I, I just wanted to suss out some of the relevant distinctions you can make in those political worldviews and how they would relate to environmentalism. And, and yeah, I noticed the same sorts of things in in environmentalist literature when they talk about politics. Um, for instance, for, for my, you know, if I, I'm, I'm left-leaning, right, I, I lean towards the left definitely sort of within the, the socialist and social liberal spectrum there. But when I'm looking at the, the uh, environmentalist literature, they normally just talk about liberalism either in a sympathetic kind of way um, uh, or it's all neoliberalism. Right. That's the dominant framework for addressing environmental issues that they sort of choose to attack would be neoliberalism, which is obviously not what like Matt was just mentioning, you know, like like Bernie Sanders and Ocasio-Cortez and Ilhan Omar. They're not neoliberals in that sort of sense of the word where you have the free market as the sort of ultimate guiding sort of light along which politics has to develop and what we should cherish and defend is the free market. But this is the dominant kind of framework for a lot of the environmentalist literature when they're looking at, say, neoliberal environmentalism on a, in a global way. You have the United Nations and the, the, the climate change framework and the COP conferences and those sorts of things. And this is where this is where this framework kind of emerges, where we have this free market that we have to defend somehow. And how much do we really want to give over to government regulation? And I, I found it was helpful to distinguish the sort of hardline neoliberal approach to it, where all we need to do is preserve the free market and add sorts of incentivizations for different things, right? Like create carbon credit markets and all these sorts of economic mechanisms. Or do we need more direct interventions? And I sort of correlated these different ideas with different kinds of political outlooks. So you have, you know, on the most extreme left side, you might have things like eco-Marxism and, and eco-fascism and, and eco, like eco this and eco that, right? The, the sorts of leftist approaches. Um, and then you have more socially liberal approaches where they do admit a certain amount of regulation. And then you have the sort of the, what I would say, the dominant framework in which these issues get dealt with does skew neoliberal in the sense that the free market needs to be protected and that mechanisms should be as as little invasive as possible into the sort of business as usual kind of way we're trying to deal with climate change at this juncture, even though the issues are very serious and a lot of people are not down with that. So that's why I was I was coming at it through the lens of this particular issue. So I also found making distinctions to be really important because if you just say all we're dealing with is neoliberalism versus socialism, then obviously they're irreconcilable. But if you admit some kinds of like, you know, if you admit more nuanced distinctions within liberalism and within socialism, and within all these different approaches that we're seeing on the global stage today, then there are actually a lot of overlap and a lot of a lot of opportunities to 
you know, work together and, and compromise on certain things rather than just looking at one versus the other. I think Eric raises a great point here, uh, which is the question of to what extent can liberalism be extricated from the logic or the ethic of market society, right? Uh, and what's interesting is that for some on the political left, and for that matter, for some defenders of market society like F.A. Hayek, they can't be extricated, right? Liberalism just is the ideological defense of market society. I think Hayek and uh, some Marxists would completely agree with that. Uh, but my contention is that you can extricate a great deal of liberalism, maybe even everything that's central to liberalism, from the logic or ethic of market society, right? Uh, and that doesn't mean that one has to do this or it's inevitable or teleological or whatever, uh, but it's not conceptually impossible. Uh, and the kind of genealogy that I trace in my book is to say, or my, sorry, section is to say, look, if you look at the kind of epicenter of liberal and socialist thought, what distinguishes them both from conservatism uh, is this belief that at least according to nature, people are moral equals. Uh, and you can find this argument made in the Second Treatise on Government. You can find it in the Leviathan. Uh, where you start to see the logic of market society emerging in the classical liberal tradition uh, is the claim that precisely because people start off as moral equals within nature, uh, what makes them differentiated in society uh, in terms of their property entitlements is how much labor uh, they're willing to commit to enriching themselves uh, and their natural capacities. Uh, and what's really damaging about this from a socialist perspective uh, is at least according to the old conservative or scholastic worldview, if there was inequality in society, uh, it was because it was set by God and it wasn't necessarily people's fault. And you would see people say things like the poor are to be pitied or show compassion. Not necessarily very nice, but not necessarily damning either, because uh, this is just the order that God wants. Uh, what you see in the classical liberal tradition is this expectation that precisely because people start off equal by nature, that justifies them as uh, condemning them if they don't rise to the top. Because they could have rose, risen to the top, they just didn't cut it, per se. Uh, and I think a lot of the alienation and animosity that we feel in contemporary neoliberal society flows from that conception uh, that you see in the kind of possessive individualist strains of classical liberalism. Saying that, uh, right, I think that there's no need for liberalism to think this way. Uh, and what I think you start to see over the course of the 19th century and the 20th century as a gradual awareness of the moral arbitrariness that defiles all life. Uh, and this sense that starts to emerge in people like Mary Wollstonecraft and Kant through John Stuart Mills, through Rawls and Nussbaum, uh, that actually condemning people for being poor is just as foolish as praising them for being rich. Uh, many of the reasons why people rise and fall occur for morally arbitrary reasons if they're not the result of historical prejudice uh, and discrimination, I should say. Uh, ergo, there's no reason for assuming that the market order of things uh, is somehow justifiable from a liberal perspective. Uh, so this is the kind of argument that I wanted to make, uh, not to imply that liberalism isn't compatible with market society, but that it doesn't have to be. Uh, and when you understand things this way, I think there's a lot that socialists can actually learn from the liberal tradition and vice versa. Yeah, if, 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 you're, if you're a kind of someone on the left who acknowledges the urgency of, of, of the situation under, under climate change and where we're going and, and – you disagree, for instance, that 2050 is and and is a good target, or that you know carbon neutrality being like net neutrality is a is a meaningless kind of political word that's just designed to sort of delay action rather than you know be something meaningful. But if, if every time you're you're speaking it 
to a political audience and you're <laughs> identifying liberalism, your holy grail of liberalism is like Milton Friedman and the Chicago Boys, and you, you don't talk to people who are potential allies but still identify as liberals, but maybe not the hardline economic liberalism. That's why it's sort of socialism, social liberalism or political liberalism versus the sort of economic neoliberalism. Uh, if, if that's if that's always going to be the way you frame your argument as talking against neoliberalism, then you're going to miss a lot of potential like overlap and more moderate positions, I think, between the two. Yeah, I wonder about that. I mean, I, I think it's certainly going to depend very based on the country. Uh, like so. So this is why, you know, I think it's useful to, to separate out like liberalism as a position on the contemporary political spectrum from liberalism as this as this sort of underlying assumption because you know because like the question of how much people who identify as liberals are are useful political allies or potential political allies or whether they're more allies or enemies you know i mean i I think it's just a very different question uh from from the question about about like broader sort of historical or philosophical liberalism like i know in the united states about 25 percent of the population you know, calls themselves liberal compared to like two thirds of the population says we should tax rich people more, you know, so, so I'm, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty skeptical that, you know, that, that, that catering too much to the 25% is, is, uh, you know, is actually that, is actually that politically, uh, politically important. I mean, the climate change issue is really hard because I also don't pretend to know what the political strategy is that would actually like secure, you know, radical action on climate change in any kind of like time frame. Martha's Vineyard sinking under the, the ocean might be an important catalyst. I just, I'll just put that forward. Yeah, I mean, if that happens, maybe, you know, if that happens soon enough, maybe we're good. Uh, other, other, otherwise, I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, that's the other thing, right? Waiting for some big horrible event to change everybody's mind about it rather than addressing the way people think about the world today and trying to, you know, instill a, a sort of more uh, maybe a less human centered kind of focus because liberalism is very human centered very kind of it distinguishes non-humans are the things we the things we mine and the resources we use and they enter into our markets whereas like if you try to argue from a philosophical perspective that non-humans and ecology and all of these things are extremely important and actually they're fundamental assumptions we make when we do politics and when the way our economic system works, it depends on functioning ecosystem services. It depends on things like that. If you can try to address people's fundamental sort of worldview and their philosophies, maybe, I mean, maybe they're vague and not worked out, but you can appeal to them in various ways. And if we try to convince people that those things are important, then we can try to get a little more proactivity maybe built into our approach to climate change instead of just waiting for Venice or the vineyards to, to sink underwater and then wake everybody up and we'll do something because by then maybe it'll be too late. It might well be. I mean, didn't Ben Shapiro point out that, you know, if Martha's Vineyard's going to fall into the ocean or Florida's going to sink, then people will just sell their homes uh, for a profit and go somewhere else, right? It's an easy fix. So I'm not even convinced that'll work. Yeah, no, that's, that, that is... That, like speaking quickly and sounding confident can go can go a long way uh, when you uh, when you say something like that. I, I mean, I guess I I guess I do probably think that any chance of of getting 
you know, serious action on climate change is probably, I'm really not optimistic about like turning a majority of the population into deep ecologists in time, in time for that. So I was, I kind of wanted to uh, switch topic a little bit and, and I wanted to ask about um, sort of maybe what one of the main critiques of like philosophical liberalism and like probably even the critiques of the more um, like left liberal ones like like Rawls, like the, the philosophical is is I think that and this is a critique that I think comes from both the right and the left uh, from the socialists and also like now these emerging, you know, post liberals with like Patrick Deneen and all them. And I think it's the, this question of sort of well, it, it's built into the structure of Rawls, right? In the fact that that he that he prioritizes the right over the good. Right. Like your rights over like what what like what some conception of the good life is. And I think often what you get from people on the right, sometimes they'll say, well, that doesn't really leave room for, you know, maybe some more like transcendent things. But like setting that aside, I think both uh, like people on that that spectrum of the right and also so more socialists will say is like this 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 meaningful community, like thick meaning structures that you get from like community. And that's why I think you get even more like analytical Marxists like G.A. Cohen. And I know that he describes in Why Not Socialism, he says, you know, to, to foster this kind of community where not only do we care about others, but we care about caring about others. Like we care that we care. And it's like this sort of like thicker attachment to others. And it does seem like even in the more um, like egalitarian, economically egalitarian forms of liberalism, philosophical liberalism, it's it's hard to see where you can get that and where you can find that. And I wonder if, uh, who, for whoever wants to pick pick the pick up on this, like like do you see that as a problem? Is it reconcilable? Because for me at least, I, I see that as like as like kind of a, a tension. And like you know, I'll just say that that for me. Uh, I've kind of, you know, resigned myself to thinking that that's probably not something that can be reconciled. And I just like rather be a liberal, uh, like I'd rather be on the liberal side, because to me, I feel like um, those like meaning structures, maybe I don't know for sure. This is very like preliminary thoughts, but might depend on a kind of coercive element of society, some sort of like that, that, that kind of instills coer like um, coerce coercive conformity, whether it's through social mechanisms or obviously more troubling that possibility like some sort of governmental but uh, yeah i wonder what any of you guys might think about about that yeah i'll just jump in really quickly because um it's one of the things that my essay talks about actually um because i do think that is a very legitimate criticism you can make of left liberalism and i often say that i'm a liberal socialist not a liberal and a socialist right because i think that we want to get the best de synthesis uh of individualism and communitarianism together as possible that doesn't mean that it's going to be a kind of utopian uh, aspiration because i think there'll always be some tensions between these two yearnings uh but we might be able to get a kind of better synthesis uh, than what we have right now uh, and the thing that i often appeal to to try to bring these two together and i criticize rawls for this amongst others uh is a kind of democratic or involved ci uh, civic life right because i do think that Democracy, civic participation, uh, localism, even of the type that the post-liberals are so fond of, uh, can be a way uh, of committing people both to pursuing their own interests while at the same time engaging with others, deliberating uh, and trying to understand where other people are coming from within their community. Uh, and I do think there are models of this being achieved quite successfully, uh, whether you think about the labor movement uh, or if you want something that's more contemporary. Uh, there's a lot of experiments with local forms of deliberative democracy in Scotland uh, right now, where people in the community come together, discuss what kind of policies they want the municipality to advance, uh, and then they essentially uh, propose legislation uh, through these kinds of formats. And it's been very successful thus far. It's still trial, uh, so we'll have to see. Um, and I think that that socialism has a very robust account of what these democratic forms of life could entail. 
and why it is that we can expand the democratic ideal to things like the economy, to things like the local level. And I think that's a necessary complement uh, to our liberal intuitions. Where I think it's important to be liberal uh, and not go too far with this uh, is recognizing the necessity of imposing restrictions on the exercise of things like state power. Uh, Irving Howe wrote a really good essay about this, uh, Liberalism and Socialism, Articles of Conciliation, where he said, uh, one of the big problems that socialists have always had, going back to Marx, is this expectation that if we just give the state limitless license to do anything, it will be able to bring about better conditions for us all. Uh, and I think he's right in arguing that liberals have been more sensitive to the potential tyrannical dimensions uh, of unchecked state power than at least many socialists uh, have been. Not all. I think, you know, Bakunin, for example, is a notable exception to that. But but certainly Howe's bigger point is is right, you know, that that like this yeah. this this is clearly something that you should worry about. Uh and this is clearly something you should worry about in post-capitalist societies, right? See the 20th century. I think that Cutlin does nail Rawls on some places where Rawls is kind of trying to have both ways on these issues and 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 showing that that's not always convincing. That like uh like like Rawls will say, you know, their passage where he says stuff like, uh well the great thing with the difference principles that we could all relate to each other the way that like, you know, like people would care about each other who are like in a family that you only, you know, you only want to be better off than them if that's going to like, you know, serve their interests at the end. And, and, and he, and I, and I think Cohen's very good at sort of showing it's like, well, no, right. Because like, if, if you're, if you really cared about somebody, like you care about a member of your family, right. You, you take the, you know, you take the more egalitarian, uh, you know, wages uh, to, uh, you know, and, and still work just as hard, you know, because you'd be motivated by caring about them. Uh, but then the question is, if he's right that there are these contradictions and roles, like how do you resolve them? And and do you resolve them in a more liberal way or in a more communitarian way? I think that one interesting thing about this is that I think that in some ways, um, this sort of more communitarian stuff and the insistence that like, a really just society is one where everybody has the right ethos towards each other. We care about each other. We care about caring about each other. Like you're quoting from that book, which I obviously like very much overall, but like, I actually think this is Cohen at his least Marxist. Like that's, 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 I mean, I, I don't know, dude, I mean, that sounds more like Christianity to me, you know, like, like, like I, I think, I think the Marxist tradition is about seeing, you know, justice in terms of like structures and institutions and, uh, and being very realistic about about how people are going to act within those structures and institutions, uh, and and focusing on that rather than what anybody's ethos is, right? And I always feel like there's a little bit of ambiguity about this and and uh, about this question of what is market freedom exactly? Because I think like so, like there's there's a sense in which like I guess basic freedoms maybe imply a form of market freedom, just in the sense of like freely being able to associate with people, to be able to trade things, to be able to like. Right. And it's and it's like, at what point does does that sort of association, right, like like become market freedom that maybe we want to put a put like a stop to or like or at least like limit in some way. But then there's like a sense in which, you know, this sort of like eliminate like a non market situation. Right. Like, I guess a lot of people would, would wonder. And, you know, I still I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's 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 answers, but but I, I just haven't at least in the discussion see, seen it clearly articulated when I like see debates about this. And it's like, you know, what what would it what would that look like? What would the mechanism be that would prevent uh, it? And like people would still presumably be able to just like buy stuff from each other. Like, I don't know, like, like have a store or, or you know, so I, I wonder if there's some way of disambiguating that. I would point out 
that you could raise all the same questions about all the ways that we limit markets uh, already, right? So I mean, this is a problem for like pretty normy forms of left liberalism too, you know, like like if you know, like if you're why is it why aren't minimum wage laws, you know, um, you know, restrictions of non-market freedom ultimately, you know, because they stop people from associating freely. Yeah, that's 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 totally true. Um, but I but but I think like when you when you just when you think about like a non-market socialism, that's like I you know I, I I struggle to to see what that would look like, right? Because like obviously putting certain kinds of limitations, you know, minimum wages, it's like, you know, markets are still you know allowed to proceed. There's just these like limitations. Uh, but then like a non-market situation, it's like I can't really. It's hard to to imagine what that would look like exactly without like some form of obviously what we all I'm sure not want, which is like involve some, uh, you know, surveillance state uh, making sure that there's no black market forming. Right. Or something like that, where people are doing this like market activity in the background because it's technically which I'm sure none of us would want. So, yeah, I don't think any of us want the command economy. Uh, I actually have like a kind of point that I'd like to make about this, uh, and I think we should pass it off to Eric, because uh, I actually think that. There's some important uh, environmental questions that kind of flow from this, right? To what extent can we put restrictions on the market? And does that entail a restriction on our freedom? Because, of course, this is exactly the argument you're going to see neoliberal defenders of market solutions to environmental problems put forward, right? That, well, yeah, maybe we it, it will you know, enable us to better protect the environment uh, if you impose strict state restrictions on what people are able to do. But isn't that a compromise with individual freedom? Very common argument, right? Uh, but my kind of claim to this uh, is that, look, you know, uh, there's no doubt that the command economies uh, that operated under the socialist name over the course of the 20th century were dramatic failures. Uh, not just dramatic economic failures in many respects, uh, but also totalitarian tyrannies that no one in their right mind would want to emulate, aside from a couple of tankies on the internet, right? And we all know what I think of them, right? Uh, I think that a more legitimate kind of socialism that has the best features of market society uh, with a more kind of egalitarian outlook, one where you do have different competitive uh, firms, but they're organized democratically by workers uh, who redistribute the goods that are produced and sold to their members, uh, while at the same time complemented by an extremely robust welfare state uh, that takes a lot of the surplus that's produced by these firms uh, to give it to those who are unable to compete in this kind of market society, right? Uh, and I think you already see templates for something like this with the Scandinavian, or if you want to call it Nordic, uh, kind of welfareist uh, models uh, or co-determination in Germany. It would just be taking it to the next kind of level, what Bhaskar Sankara sometimes calls five minutes after capitalism, right? Uh, and I think this would also preserve incentives for economic activity while democratizing power, which is really what I think the crucial element of the socialist critique of markets has been from the very beginning, right? That it distributes power uh, and consequently wealth and economic opportunities in a very inegalitarian way. What tends to be relevant for the environmentalist perspective when you're talking about defending the free market is uh, this sort of optimism about competition and innovation, right? That that somewhere down the pipeline, there's some great new technology that is going to come along and save us, whatever it is, carbon capture technology or something like that. And that if you put limitations on our abilities to, you know, what you're Elon saying. Elon Musk uh, would be like our green messiah or something, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Our, our eco-Jesus is going to come along and save us. And if you put limitations on those people's abilities to or anybody's ability to associate economically and pursue their sorts of in, individual interests, then you will hamper the sorts of innovations that we need to save ourselves from this problem that we've created in the first place through burning fossil fuels. 
And so that's one of the things that follows from, I think, I, I guess that's one of the, the, the ways that free market defenders then can turn to the environmental issue and say, well, if you, you know, if you hamper innovation, we're going to lose all of these technologies that will probably go to save us down the line. And I have no response to that. Maybe that's true. Maybe if, maybe if we do start limiting, you know, maybe if we do start emphasizing that we need to get rid of fossil fuels and move on to green technologies and do that in a kind of artificial imposed kind of way rather than just let the prices naturally fall maybe maybe then we will lose out on some innovations that will actually be crucial but then these are just giant what if questions and that's why i try to avoid sort of forecasting or 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 addressing any solutions i was just trying to point out some where there's differences you know obviously we don't you know the the revolutionary kind of total change in society approaches is maybe not the way to go about it. You have to look about what kinds of reformist and what kinds of local resistance and direct action can go along with the sorts of broader, like I was saying before, addressing climate change within an international framework where you have countries coming together and discussing how they fit into these sorts of Paris climate agreements and the and the Rio conferences and all of those things, how they, how, what can countries do at that level? And then what can people do more at an individual level of communal organization? And I think, I think the the sorts of individualism that you get with liberalism can be a little bit more difficult at the grassroots level, cashing out at the grassroots level of, of, of communal organization and direct action and, this, I mean, even here in Canada, the tone I still see the media taking towards people who are blockading development projects and people who are, you know, protesting the ways that companies will, you know, suck all the resources out and then and then cap the well and run off and, and never do anything about it. Never, you know, they create all these cleanup problems, but because of the legal framework we work within, they can just leave and not be on the hook for those costs, right? So I just tried to look at what, you know, from the free market perspective, well, those are external costs, right? I did my business. I extracted my coil. I pumped my wells. Everything that comes out of that, the cleanup and all the other shit that you have to deal with in the future, that's, those are external costs. How do we, how do we internalize those costs and how do we, how do we address those both at the level of, of policymaking, but also at the level of, of, of direct action, communal organization, blockadia, those sorts of ideas as well. We still have this underlying ethos of infinite growth and productivism for production's sake and trying to bring it again on the more philosophical level towards this ethic of care and towards this, if you could say, deep ecology or an appreciation for the interconnectedness of life and giving non-humans and a voice in politics as well. I would say, just looping back to the question about uh, about markets, that like, it's obviously not my position. Uh, I, I mean, I'm with Matt, uh, more or less. I mean, I, I think that um, whether we could ever, like, figure out how to do a completely planned economy that wasn't, you know, that, that didn't end up with the sort of economic dysfunction of the Soviet Union, uh, you know, it I'd re- regard as an open empirical question. I mean, like, if, like, supercomputers in the future, you know, could, could give us 
red plenty than great right but uh shout out to to pills and his cybersyn documentary <laughs> yeah no exactly right like so so if that yeah so if that happened right like if that sort of possibility that was represented by by you know by the like what the designers of cybersyn were 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 sort of ultimately envisioning or like what you know anybody who's ever read uh you know that novel read plenty you know with, about those computer scientists of the soviet union and the khrushchev era who were like thinking along these same lines or whatever like if that happens great right uh but yeah i mean i th- i think you know my thoughts about what could happen five minutes after capitalism are are, are you know largely in line with what matt said and what Bosker thinks and all that um i i think you know but I'd be. Ha- I, I would say, right? I think what if there was somebody who's more confident about the prospects for effective planning than any of us probably are was here in this discussion? I think that a point they would make is that markets don't just like spring out of the ground, you know, like weeds, right? Markets are a result of complex social arrangements that that enable them to uh, to exist. Uh, certainly, or at the very least, markets on the scale of like what we think of as a market economy right now are, right? I mean, they've, markets exist in a variety of other kinds of societies, but nothing like this. And, you know, there are all sorts of ways in which that relies actually on state action, most obviously uh, currency, right? You know, like like good luck having a, a thriving market, you know, without like some sort of currency everybody accepts. Um, no, Bitcoin couldn't do it. Longer discussion, <laughs> but no. Uh, so, um I, I think that, you know, so I think that it's not just a matter of, well, there will be markets unless we do something to stop it. You know, and, and even if you think about black markets, you know, I think you generally get black markets on any significant scale, at least for for two reasons. One is the reason that you get like black markets and drugs or, you know, or, or bad guns or whatever, which is that people want things that they can't find in legal markets or two, uh, the reason that you get black markets you know, if you walk around like, you know, Manhattan, you know, there'll be people trying to sell you like DVDs or, you know, loose cigarettes or whatever, which are all available at the legal market. But the reason you have that black market is that there are lots of like desperately poor people who like this is this is the way they've come up with to to um, to support themselves. So I think the I think the planning advocate would say, well, you know, we without necessarily having like the NKVD there to stop you. You know, we could we could still avoid you know having a black market at a significant scale, if if we aren't like wreck. You know, probably some things we do need to ban because they're incredibly dangerous. You know, but like you know, but we we try not to ban too many things that people want, and uh, and and we try not to have an underclass of people who are desperate enough, you know, to try to support themselves this way. And then I think the real question is whether economic planning is going to get you those results. And again, at least right now, I'm skeptical. But real quick on the environmental question, uh, I actually do think that like this is one of the best criticisms that like non-market socialists could make of, of market socialist proposals, because what we ultimately have to say about that is that our solutions to these things are kind of the same as the solutions of just like regular pro-capitalist liberals, you know, that like that, that they're ultimately going to be regulatory solutions rather than solutions that are about just totally re-engineering the economic incentives that exist in the system in the first place. Uh, Because, you know, but I guess the best thing that you could say on behalf of that, like why this is any better than like just what regular liberals would say about the environment is that even if the solutions are ultimately going to be the same, 
I like the chances of good policies on the environment emerging from political deliberation way better if that political deliberation doesn't involve lobbying by ExxonMobil. Absolutely. But by the way, Victor, uh, I had a question for you, uh, and I'm just going to make a comment, but I know that your essay touches on some of uh, these themes uh, with your argument for a kind of reformist approach to democracy, particularly through Sartitian. Uh, because one of the major visceral motivations behind writing this book uh, is just precisely that if you spend a lot of time uh, in leftist or liberal circles, you'll find that a lot of people there don't like the other side very much, uh, even if they haven't spent a lot of time actually thinking about what the other side happens to believe. Uh, and that's not to try to whitewash our differences and say that everyone is actually actually believes the same thing. We just haven't really talked about it enough yet. I don't think that's true. Uh, and I do think that socialists and liberals have good criticisms of each other. Uh, and we, we've addressed in some depth here. But I do find that there are a lot of people for whom the disdain for liberalism uh, flows less from any kind of deep thinking about what liberals actually believe uh, and more out of a kind of aesthetic attraction to the idea of radicalism for its own sake uh, that I also think is very undialectical, right? This notion that we don't want to reform society or change society or innovate society. We want to break society. Um, there's almost this kind of Sorelian grandeur associated with the idea of radicalism and revolution for its own sake. And I do think that that's very unhelpful, not to mention very undialectical, because uh, it presupposes that you can have this kind of millenarian year one type approach to reconstructing society uh, and reforming everyone carte blanche that I don't think is either realistic or particularly helpful in getting people beyond this kind of uh, the people who are attracted to this aesthetics of radicalism on side with what we're proposing. Uh, on the other front, I do think that many liberals just associate socialism with radicalism for its own sake because they kind of buy into this stereotype. Uh, and they don't recognize that there's this very long history of democratic socialist parties, social democratic parties, from the SPD uh, down to the Socialist Party of France that have enacted extraordinarily important reforms uh, that have benefited millions of people uh, and that are widely popular. In fact, so widely popular today that no one thinks of challenging them. Uh, I was speaking to uh, Jeremy Gilbert the other day, the author of 21st Century Socialism, and one of the great parts of his book is he says, if you ask people what the most popular institution in the United Kingdom is, without a doubt, immediately they say the NHS, uh, which was brought to us by a socialist party, right? Uh, and it's so popular that even Margaret Thatcher, at the height of her infamy, if you want to call it that, uh, gave a speech saying, you know, the NHS is safe for us because that's an achievement that we gave to the world uh, that no one is willing to take away. So what was the question? Well, my, my question... <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. It's okay. yeah. <laughs> Just making fun of your long, your very grand, grandiose, long-winded uh, questions. No, it's great. It's, great. it's a great it's a great set of thoughts. It's, not, it's not a response by me. If it's not grandiose <laughs> and long-winded, Victor, you know that. <laughs> here's, here's a shorter way to ask the question. Uh, I always think of... Uh, the late Michael Brooks, when he was making fun of a mutual acquaintance that I'm not going to name here, uh, and and he'd, he'd, he'd do this impression, you know, where he'd be like, sorry, Dad, I'm a communist. And <laughs> do you think people being like that is a big problem and is a, and is a, and is a big source of instinctive hostility to anything that has the word liberal in it? 
<laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, no, that's that's well put, very well put. Um, well, the, the reason I brought this up also is because Vic, your essay is a lot about how we could reform representative structures. Yeah, um, I mean, I mean, part part of the impetus behind the essay, which I think people have probably heard me talk about. I mean, I think I talked about it on this podcast. I, I went on, I went on Ben's podcast a while ago just to talk about that essay as well. Um, but but I think like the impetus has a lot to do with like my own dissertation research, which right now, like I just, I mean, I submitted a chapter not too long ago about the radical democratic theory tradition, which. It's kind of situated as like a response to what was perceived in like the theory community in like the, the egalitarian or left-wing theory community as like sort of the failure of marxism because uh you know marxism for them was based on this premise that there is like an ontologically distinct sort of like working class that is one thing and then like in reaction to realizing that actually society has all these sort of like pluralistic identities and problems they're just like well we can't really think about like socialist strategy in terms of like a one working class like unit as like a, as like a separate thing so instead they you know they, they kind of formulate this 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 way of conducting sort of like democratic contests to be well to radicalize them sort of to to make them to try to and and it ends up having this sort of like anti-institutional bent sort of like talking about how like liberal democratic institutions um kind of like erase these inherent pluralistic differences that exist in society by like you know like regulating them and putting them into these channels so like true differences can't you know express themselves some of this is influenced by sort of post-structuralism and stuff like that but um i i, I guess one of the things that i found uh interesting about that was that all all the t like in this tradition there were they have this requirement that these contests have to avoid devolving into antagonism. So it's like they want these contests to be like agonistic, right? That's the other name for it, agonistic uh, democracy, um, where you don't want to destroy your enemy. Uh, you you want to you want to sort of like see the inherent contingency of your identity and their identity at the same time, and then you can kind of battle it out, but like not to destroy people. And and I, I always just found that, that that like it seems to rely on this. Uh, I find unconvincing assumption that that um that we can somehow make make people and they're not really clear on how to do this uh, make them i think in a way more civically virtuous because because I, I think like adopting that attitude of like seeing your interlocutor as not an enemy to be destroyed but to to you to have what they call agonistic respect for them where you you know you respect their 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 right to exist and their claims but you're going to battle them and it's like i i feel like that's actually like a pretty intellectually robust insight to have to like think about like it at, at the very least it's not something that i think seems like a a solution for 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 politics for mass politics uh right it, it requires a, so so i i was kind of finding that unconvincing but wanting more like more of this like i kind of agreed with their insights that maybe like electoral politics at least doesn't really leave enough space for these contests to proceed um, but I found this 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 kind of account of, of of I think it implies even a sort of perfectionism about human beings that like we need to cultivate these virtues in people that, that I just don't find all that convincing. So I I I, th I thought that like sortition was like an interesting institutional alternative that would kind of allow for more of these sorts of true political contests to occur, but um but in a way that doesn't sort of like rely on as much of this sort of like just wanting to be against institutions all the time and because it's not you know sh like it's not re accounting for like the true nature of people's diverse identities and stuff like that and so we need to be against institutions that are trying to like crush my identity just you know going back to the the michael brooks thing you know like th that that intuition that 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 sort of drive towards being like oh screw you like you know i'm a marxist like too bad 
ideally what you want to do if you want to win in antagonistic politics is 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 you need to uh you know convince the great majority of people that uh you know just, just to be really crude about it that you know that that uh, the the things that you want are good for them and and that anybody who is like really a, a uh, intransigent opponent of the things that you want you know is, is an enemy of them and I mean, good luck doing it. Like, if if your whole identity is is it revolves around this like aesthetic attachment to like seeing yourself as the most extreme possible opponent of everything that exists, because most human beings have an entirely rational fear of flying leaps into the unknown. Yeah, no, totally. And just let me quickly clarify too that I just want to make a joke antagonism... because every time I, I right. every time I hear you speak about this, Victor. <laughs> Honestly, I think of agonistic democracy as like passive aggressive democracy. Like every time you describe it, I get like Desperate Housewives, <laughs> 2000 era office or like the woman from Midnight Mass. If you've just seen it kind of like, no, no, like they're really great. But, you know, that kind of vibe. Anyway. Yeah, no, to- I, totally. I, I, and I think maybe sometimes I like undersell like the type of antagonism they really have in mind that they're trying to avoid, which is like, you know, more like I'm sure like what Ben was describing, they would be like, yeah, like that's what we mean by like in a way agonistic, although there is a bit more um, required because of the fact that there wouldn't necessarily be as many institutions. It would be a bit more like anarchistic a little bit. So you'd need maybe a bit something stronger. But really what they mean by antagonism is like something that could potentially lead to like violence. I don't know. Maybe that was what you had in mind. Uh, well, I mean, ben, I, but, like, I, well, yeah. I, I mean, I'd like to avoid violence if at all possible. Uh you know, both both for like the obvious moral reasons and also because it goes back to the same point, right? That like it or not, right? And if you have if you have the kind of like riot and barricade fetish, you know, that a lot of this this kind of leftists we're talking about have, you know, you're gonna wish it were otherwise. But the fact is the vast majority of human beings and in, you know, the vast majority of times and places have an entirely rational dislike of the idea that there's going to be violence and like chaos in the streets and 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 that's going to be a pretty powerful motivator for them to oppose things that they think are going to are going to lead to it right so i, I think i think the more you can uh do things non-violently the the better off you are and i'm not saying this is like a universal gandhian principle for all times and all places or anything like i i, I think it's good that the union you know fought the civil war but um but as, and, you know, if, if Salvador Allende had been able to do the same thing, you know, go back to CyberSign to defend democracy in Chile, I would have been all for it, you know, that, that uh, like, you know, but, like, you really want to avoid it as much as at all possible for all the reasons that we've just been talking about. And I, but the flip side of that is I think that, like, especially if you're talking about, you know, the uh, transition to a more egalitarian economic system, like, the fact is there just is going to be a certain percentage of the population that is just going to be intransigently opposed to it. Uh, and, you know, you're, you're not going to, you know, there's no moral argument that's going to get, get Jeff Bezos to, uh, to accept that it would actually, it's actually more important, you know, that, 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 uh, that people, you know, that like warehouse workers have good lives that he gets to go to space. Um, so like, you just have to defeat him. But I think putting those together, well, if you just have to defeat him, but you also need what to do it as nonviolently as humanly possible, you know, uh, if nothing else is a pragmatic imperative, even if it, even if you didn't see it as a moral one, um, 
then I think that's all the more reason that you need to um, get as overwhelming a percentage of the population on your side as as at all possible, right? Like you can't get everybody like that's just not realistic. But like you can you can you know the bigger it is, right, the less prospect there is for 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 trying to uh, to violently you know, prevent social change. I'm just going to say the solution has been staring us in the face this whole time. Uh, We need to do that obnoxious U2 thing they did for their last album and just automatically download like complete punk discography onto everyone's iTunes and Spotify. Uh, So to give everybody the right fetish. Yeah, just just throw it on there from the age 10 forward and we'll let nature take care of itself. The teleology of history will unfurl as it needed to from the beginning. Good. I mean, I don't know. What do you guys think? I feel like that could be a, a good point to end on unless unless uh, anyone else had some some final thoughts. I think we're, we're a little over an hour here, so I'm happy ending on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm good. With All right, great. Yeah, right, I think well, we've done uh, the work for Paul Grave here. <laughs> Yeah, we've done it. We've done the work, but also don't buy the books. It's going to be way too expensive. <laughs> yeah, I, I will say that as well. Check don't it out, don't buy our book. Order to your library. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Order, like order stick it in your cart at least at Amazon and think about it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, wait till you're drunk and you accidentally click buy. Oh, you know. Yeah, I'd like to see uh, William Shatner reading it while he's out in space. You know, just yeah. hanging, hanging out up there. That'd be good. All right. Well, thanks a lot, guys. And uh, yeah, obviously catch us on another pill pod. The three, the three of us here, the three nor- regular amigos, and Ben. You'll you can find him on his channel, YouTube channel. I think it's is it called Give Them an, or did it sw- switch to Ben Burgess now? Uh, no, the, well, the YouTube cha- it's called Give Them an Argument. Yeah. Oh right, right. So so yeah. I, I mean, if if you just if you just switch, I mean, it, honestly, like nobody actually types in URLs. If you just uh, if if you just search type either Ben Burgess or give them an argument into into uh, like the YouTube search bar, like you'll find it. Yeah, for sure. And did you want to plug anything else when you're here? <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I guess uh, the school, the Cohen class. Uh, so that's that Michael Abbott's thing. Uh, somebody, by the way, who disagrees with us about markets. Uh, the uh, School for Social and Cultural Change. Uh, and uh, so that's SSCC, right? School for Social and Cultural Change, sscc.teachable.com. Probably by the time this comes out, the first session will have, have happened, but it's recorded on Zoom and there's seven more after that. So, you know, you're certainly welcome to enroll a little late. Awesome. And how has their enrollment been for that? I'm curious. Do you, did you, have you looked or? Uh, yeah, I think it's like 55 people. Awesome. So, yeah. That's great. That's pretty good. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks, everybody. Yeah, thank you. Recording stopped.